0: Pan Am was the principal and largest international air carrier and unofficial overseas flag carrier of the United States for decades. But in the 1990s, it all fell apart, even after being credited for shaping the international airline industry itself. Whether you think the reason is deregulation, bombs on their planes, massive cutbacks, or a combination of all these factors, let's see if we can find out what took Pan Am planes out of the sky. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Prism of the Past. Today, we're going to be taking a look at Pan Am, otherwise known as Pan American World Airways. Let's get started with the history of the company and learn how they became so well-known in the first place. Some sources say that Pan Am was founded as a shell company by two US Air Force officers in 1927. Henry Hap Arnold, Carl Spatz, and John Jouet founded the company because they were concerned about a German-owned Colombian air carrier, SCATDA, which had been lobbying hard for landing rights in the Panama Canal zone. The men worried about SCATDA and surveying air routes for a connection to the US, which the Air Corps viewed as a potential German aerial threat. When the U.S. Post Office requested bids on a contract to deliver mail from Key West, Florida to Havana, Cuba, the men discovered that SCATTA had hired a company in Delaware to obtain airmail contracts from the U.S. government. Hoping to pull the contract out from under them, the men submitted a prospectus for Pan American, even though they didn't even have a plane or landing rights in Cuba. A third man, Juan Tripp, also wanted that contract. So he formed a company called the Aviation Corporation of the Americas, Unlike Arnold and Jouet, Tripp actually had landing rights in Havana. Investment banker, Richard Hoyt, established another company called Atlantic Gulf and Caribbean Airways, also hoping to snag that very contract. Ultimately, USPS gave the contract to Pan Am, putting Spatz and Jouet in a very uncomfortable position since they lacked not just the landing rights in Cuba, but an actual plane. Also, that deadline was approaching quite quickly. The immediate concern was a $25,000 cash bond, which was worth about $374,000 in today's money, deposited as a guarantee of performance, as well as a possible withdrawal of the contract that depended on the successful completion of the first airmail flight, which had to be completed by October 19, 1927. The trail leading up to this historic moment had been fraught with political and business intrigue, as well as high stakes financial maneuverings by rival groups of powerful and ambitious players the ultimate prize was the airmail contract. Three groups had played an intricate game, trying to outmaneuver one another to gain the ultimate advantage. One trip, the person holding the ultimate trump card united the three groups in a merger just days before the deadline. Trip had ordered two aircraft en route to Key West, but they had no place to land as heavy rains delayed the completion of the runway needed to accommodate Pan Am's planes. And the soft coral soil itself was not suitable to land on. In what Pan Am's website called a miraculous coincidence of events, the owner of the West Indian Aerial Express agreed to permit the charter of one plane, the Fairchild FC-2 float plane to carry Pan Am's mail to Havana. Pan Am came through in clutch and on the very last day permitted under the contract operated their first flight. The government was all on board with Pan Am as well. Congress passed the Foreign Air Mail Act on March 8, 1928 to regulate this international service and Pan Am was the chosen instrument to facilitate economic expansion into Latin America. The US government actually awarded Pan Am every foreign airmail route for which bids were invited. This includes flights to Havana, Cuba, San Juan, Puerto Rico, Nassau in the Bahamas, Mexico City, Santiago, Chile, and according to one source, To a large degree, Pan Am's expansion was helped by provisions of the Foreign Air Mail Act. In accordance with the wishes of the administration of President Calvin Coolidge, and in particular, its Secretary of Commerce, Herbert Hoover, the act provided that only airlines capable of operating on a scale and manner that would project the dignity of the United States in Latin America would be granted the right to carry international mail. Second, contracts would only be given to companies that had been invited for operations by the countries of Latin America. In both cases, Juan Tripp made sure that Pan Am had no competition. He aggressively pursued friendly relations with most countries in Latin America and the Caribbean and often personally met with foreign leaders. Tripp was also the kind of entrepreneur who emphasized elegance and grandeur in operating his airline trip also invited famous aviator Charles Lindbergh to serve as a technical advisor to Pan Am. The airline inaugurated its first passenger flight on January 9, 1929 from Miami to San Juan by way of Belize and Managua. The 2000 mile journey lasted about 56 hours including two overnight stops. Pan Am was the first US airline to embrace the jet era and they flourished in the 30s when they operated their famous Clipper Ship Service, an oceanwide network with a fleet of 25 flying boats, otherwise known as seaplanes. Trip influenced the shape of Boeing's new aircraft, the 747, which would carry almost 500 passengers in the following years. Hell, they even had an ad campaign where they encouraged Americans to fly to Cuba to escape prohibition so they could drink during the summer. Pan Am was soaring, so to speak. Not just out of a desire to better the economy, but also a desire to compete, namely with Germany. Hap Arnold, who helped create Pan Am, was an aviation hero. In 1938, he took over the Air Corps after General Oscar Westover died in a plane crash. According to the Air Force Times, only air power would phase Hitler, Roosevelt declared. He said he wanted planes now and many more than the 178 stipulated in the 1940 budget. Of the nation's 5,000 military aircraft, only half were built for combat. FDR demanded a production goal of 10,000 planes per year with capacity for 20,000 going all out. Roosevelt said he felt alarm not only about American air power, but allied readiness. Soon Pan Am went to war. In 1939, after six years of flying businessmen, diplomats, officers, and celebrities across the Pacific, the company now flew giant Boeing-made clippers to Europe. Following the Nazi invasion of Poland that year, Pan Am quietly undertook airfield construction and aircraft ferrying operation under a secret war department contract. Also, as an aside here, Pan Am called all their planes clippers after the famous sailing ships, even though Martin and Boeing flying boats are most closely associated with that name. Anyway, by December, 1941, Pan Am's routes spanned half the world. They made headlines in 1942 when their ship, the Pacific Clipper completed the first ever circumnavigation of the globe by a commercial airliner. A year later in 1943, FDR became the first president to travel by airplane on US official business and he went in the Dixie Clipper, one of Pan Am's planes. Pan Am also carried extremely classified cargo on their trips as well, such as uranium for the atomic bomb. According to Pan Am's website, when World War II began, uranium came from only three places, Canada and what are now the Czech Republic and Gabon. The Nazi seizure of Czech uranium mines alarmed Albert Einstein, who noted it in a famous letter to Roosevelt urging him to pursue the atomic bomb. Throughout the war, Pan Am thrived. They partnered with the government and continually made headlines. Even after the war, they still maintained a sense of importance. On July 15th, 1942, Tripp is quoted as saying that Pan Am has an important role in peace and building a better world to come. They speed the interchange of commerce and scientific progress. In December, 1944, Pan Am said their Christmas gift of the month would be smartly uniform stewardesses, the first ever cheesecakes to fly to Alaska. And I definitely cannot say I think I've ever heard a woman being referred to as a cheesecake before, so that's a new one. However, for a while, Pan Am had minimal competition. Though they were still famous after the war, things slowly began to change in the world as others like United and Northwest Airlines were granted overseas routes. Pan Am adopted the slogan, the world's most experienced airline after World War II shattered the limits on American aviation. National and colonial boundaries once closed to Pan Am were erased in its aftermath. According to one of my sources, they built 53 air bases in Latin America and around the world. They expanded the number of people on the payroll from 4,400 to more than 80,000. In 1943 alone, Pan Am earned $126 million for their war services. Yet after the war, European governments saw the potential of of air power for domination and control in a post-war world. So they started competing with Pan Am. Despite his early connections to flying the rich and famous in his air taxi service, Tripp always believed that flying should be accessible to all. Pan Am's success finally gave him the platform he needed. And in 1945, he created the world's first tourist class. Slashing the normal round trip fare from New York to London by more than half, the industry didn't warm to the idea and the UK even banned Pan Am flights that sold economy tickets. Forcing the airline to land in Shannon, Ireland instead. This unnecessary posturing had one happy outcome when cold Pan Am passengers were warmed up one night by the first ever Irish coffees. No amount of alcohol could make people forget about cheap airline tickets, however. The age of mass travel owes much to Tripp's foresight. He even founded intercontinental hotels to accommodate his growing number of passengers. In 1947, Pan Am also scheduled the first ever round the world flight. As part of the Bermuda Agreement of 1946, Pan Am and the US in general had the authority for its international air carrier to pick up passengers from Britain, British colonies like India and Hong Kong, and beyond points in Europe and Asia. The international air transportation system truly evolved. Tripp was talented at both winning foreign airmail contracts as well as negotiating landing concessions with countries of interest, which truly kept them going. But even he could not anticipate how much the aircraft world would grow and change. In the spring of 1948, Berlin was under siege, still divided into zones of control reflecting the powers that vanquished Hitler. It was left to the Western allies to keep Berlin citizens fed and supported. And so one of the Cold War's most dramatic periods began, the Berlin Airlift. 5,000 tons of food, coal, and supplies had to be moved into the city every single day by air. The Army Chief of Plans and Operations, General Albert Wedemeyer has been familiar with Pan Am subsidiary, the CNAC, who pioneered the Hump Airlift. Though Pan Am simply played a support role in these operations, as their website puts it, this proved that they were willing to step up to the plate and work with Uncle Sam when asked. Throughout the 50s, they continued this climb, scheduling the first scheduled transatlantic service of a US-built jet. Pan Am flew the Beatles for their first US visit in 1964 con man Frank Abagnale pretended to be a pilot on what he called this Ritz Carlton of airlines around the time. Documenting his experiences in the memoir, Catch Me If You Can, which later became a movie and which soon will also become an episode on multi-level Mondays. The point is that Pan Am could really do no wrong. Then in 1965, Tripp's fascination with jet aircraft began to show itself. Wanting to stand out, he asked Boeing President Bill Allen to look into designing an aircraft that would dwarf anything on the market. The Boeing 747 was born, based on work already done on a cargo aircraft. The 747, which began its commercial life in January, 1970, became an icon. Boeing was said to be betting on the company on this new aircraft, but the gamble paid off. About 1,500 747s had been made. The model was flown the equivalent of more than 100,000 return trips to the moon. It became an absolute icon and the new standard for the world to follow. Unfortunately, the 747 also contributed to Pan Am's own downfall. Too many were ordered early on and operating costs were rising due to the 1973 oil crisis. In October, 1973, The Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries declared an oil embargo against nations, including the US that were supporting Israel in the Yom Kippur War. By the end of the embargo in March, 1974, the price of oil had risen more than 400%. This hit Pan Am harder than other airlines because of its exclusively long haul flights, which required more fuel. Even if they'd entered the jet age, Pan Am suddenly had the inefficient plane on their hands that sure wouldn't do them any favors during an oil crisis. Not to mention, Trip had stepped back from day-to-day management around this time, so the company's greatest leader wasn't even around much. To make matters worse, the Civil Aeronautics Board began permitting larger airlines with more extensive domestic networks into intercontinental routes, creating more competition for Pan Am. Make no mistake, Pan Am was still a titan of industry, but they weren't exactly at the peak of their success anymore and far from it. Pan Am was said to be ill-prepared for calamities in the airline business. Bad luck may account for most of their issues as we'll see the more we go on, but in a volatile business, preparing for unforeseen circumstances is important, essential even. However, because Pan Am started their business during a time when they had so few, if any, competitors, keeping up as the world caught up to them proved incredibly difficult. Pan Am employees worried about losing their jobs took out a full page in the New York Times in September, 1974, to point out that the US Export-Import Bank loaned out money to foreign countries with an interest rate of 6%, while Pan Am paid 12. They also questioned why the USPS paid foreign airlines as much as five times it paid Pan Am for hauling the same mail. They were right to be upset and worried. They became one of the most financially troubled airlines, whereas a couple decades earlier, they were prospering. Unfortunately, though, they were already sinking. The hardships only compounded. Pan Am had been around for a while, so long that perhaps they just weren't prepared to change, especially not when the Airlines Deregulation Act in 1978 was introduced, This law put in place by President Jimmy Carter's administration removed federal control over many critical aspects of the aviation industry, as Simple Flying's website explains. Before this act, the Civil Aeronautics Board regulated domestic interstate routes. The board set most of the routes, schedules, and even fares. However, the new policy gave greater freedom to carriers and helped them have better control of their operations. Vitally, it was now far more manageable for startups to break into the industry. The law encouraged the growth of new carriers and entry into new markets for existing ones. Additionally, authorities wanted to decrease concentration that would allow airlines to increase prices and unreasonably reduce services. Ultimately, the act sought to increase competition within the industry. Before this, air travel was a luxury that only a privileged few could afford. Though the introduction of the jet helped reduce ticket prices, this law allowed for a genuinely free market in the commercial airline industry. The golden age of aviation is widely considered to be in the 50s and 60s. An airline was essentially a cocktail party with wings as the Boston Globe had described it. Hell, there were even dress codes. Deregulation essentially ended all of this. More people wanted to fly and more low cost airlines offered tickets to them. Something had to give. Newcomers benefited from the transition, whereas veteran companies like Pan Am struggled to reduce their cost. Tensions with labor unions soared, airport congestion became a problem and passenger complaints skyrocketed. There were benefits and downsides, but unfortunately for Pan Am, those downsides were far more numerous. With these new laws in place, Pan Am needed to be able to compete again and they hoped to do so by establishing a domestic system. They hastily purchased national airlines for $437 million. According to Barnaby Conrad III, author of the book Pan Am, An Aviation Legend, It cost a tremendous amount of money to acquire this particular airline to get the routes. They obviously made a choice. You couldn't build from scratch. They needed to go out and buy something. You basically had two cultures going on. Pan Am, very worldly, sophisticated, international. Then you had national airlines. They were sort of puddle jumpers. They were considered country pilots. So there was a mix of culture that didn't work there. You had different kind of aircraft. And so mechanics had never worked on certain airplanes. I think there was a mismatch there too, personnel, different airports. Just in general, it was a really small Southern airline that was matching up with an international airline. This mismatch didn't work out. Pan Am attempted to save themselves, but it was hemorrhaging money by the millions. They kept liquidating to offset their losses, selling their iconic Manhattan head office for $400 million, trading hotel chains, and selling their entire Pacific division to United Airlines. They still had a global reputation as the flagship US airline, but on paper, it was a very different story. Some sources explain that while Pan Am had to borrow money to complete this merger with National, they made strategic errors along the way. For many years, they operated out of a temporary terminal at JFK. National had a terminal called Sundrum, which was too big for their needs. So after the merger, Pan Am sold Sundrum to a different airline, TWA. However, this ended up being, well, an awful move. U.S. Air moved to TWA's original terminal at JFK right next to the Sundrum, and began encouraging Europe-bound passengers to take U.S. Air to New York City, then TWA, not Pan Am. Effectively, Pan Am had chosen to relinquish to TWA high fare business travelers who worked for companies like Kodak, Eli Lilly, and U.S. Steel based in cities on U.S. Air's routes in exchange for low fare vacationers going to Florida on national's old routes while also giving TWA the opportunity to use the additional gates at the Sundrome to substantially expand TWA's routes from New York City. National did service NYC, Miami, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, but they didn't service cities that had a large number of people who needed to travel for business, like Atlanta, Chicago, St. Louis, Minneapolis, or Cincinnati. They had Detroit along their route, but that was about it. A simple glance at the route systems would have shown this, but it seems like Pan Am was so desperate to have a domestic route that they settled. Fortune Magazine even named this one of the top seven worst mergers of 1970. Pan Am wanted so badly to beat out Texas International, a different airline that had been interested in purchasing National, that they didn't think about the practicality of the situation. National Airlines wasn't the solution they needed. They could have shrunk the airline down to its most profitable routes or merged with a different airline that could have given them a stronger domestic route system. But hey, businesses make mistakes and this was a massive one. Before we continue on to talk about the final strings of what would be the end of Pan Am, let's take a quick break to thank today's sponsors. Okay, so it's pretty obvious it's fall season right now. And for me right now, that means chunky, oversized, comfy sweaters, and then some kind of like cute fitted plaid skirt or something like that, and then tights. Specifically, those beigey tan colored tights. And I don't know why, but it's doing something for me this fall season. But unfortunately, that still means, even though my legs are covered up, that I still need to have dolphin legs. And that's where Athena Club's razor comes in because Athena Club's razor is designed with built-in skin guards to help prevent razor burn while you're shaving and be gentle on curves, including your kneecaps, which, oh, so nice, so, so nice. The best part is that the razor kit is only nine bucks and it comes with two blade heads, a magnetic hook for shower storage and your choice of handle color. I have moved on to the handle color in coral because I lost my mint one like an idiot. So now I have coral and hopefully with the brighter color, I won't lose it this time. So make sure you show your skin you care with the Athena Club razor kit. Sign up today and you'll get 20% off your first order. Just go to athenaclub.com and use promo code PRISM. That's A-T-H-E-N-A-C-L-U-B.com with promo code PRISM for 20% off. Rescue teams from all over Britain are heading for the scene of what looks to be Britain's worst air crash tonight. Just after seven this evening, a jumbo jet crashed onto the town of Lockerbie in the Scottish borders. On December 21st, 1988, Pan Am Flight 103 took off from Heathrow in England bound for New York. Before it could get there, a bomb that had been placed on board blew up over a small town in Scotland called Lockerbie. The whole story behind this bombing is complex, but history.com sums it up well when they state the following. Tensions between Libya and the United States had been mounting for years when in March, 1986, the two sides fired on each other in disputed waters off the Libyan coast. The following month, a bomb went off in West Berlin disco, popular with American servicemen, killing two US soldiers and a Turkish woman and injuring more than 200 others. Having intercepted communications that purportedly implicated Libya's government in the attack, the United States responded with airstrikes. We believed that this preemptive action will not only diminish Libyan leader, Madar al qaddafis capacity to export terror, it will provide him with incentives and reasons to alter his criminal behavior, US President Ronald Reagan said at that time. Yet, Gaddafi hadn't actually been scared into submission. His agents hid a bomb inside a radio cassette player and placed it in a suitcase, which they sent on a Pan Am flight to Frankfurt on December 21, 1988. The suitcase made it through the first leg of the journey to London, but just minutes after flight 103 took off for the second leg of the journey to New York City, the bomb detonated by the left wing. The passengers plummeted tens of thousands of feet and none of them survived. All 259 people aboard died, plus 11 people in the town below. The fuel-laden wings and a section of the main body of the plane crashed into a house. The subsequent explosion created a 155 foot long crater, sending a fireball shooting into the sky. One policeman compared it to a miniature atomic bomb because of the mushroom cloud. Homes up to 75 yards away lost their roofs and even those further away had their doors and windows shattered. Dozens of fires broke out from the falling debris as well. We express our sorrow and our concern for the families and friends of those who died in the crash of the Pan American Flight 103. I've got to go. Up the statement from the Iranians that they regret what happened that they had nothing to do with it? I think we're gonna find out, try to find out by substantial evidence who had anything to do with it. Understandably, people wanted answers. Families of the victims testified before Congress and in May, 1990, a presidential commission declared the US civil aviation security system was seriously flawed and failed to provide the proper level of protection for the traveling public. This was only reinforced when days after this report, the father of a victim successfully snuck a fake radio cassette player bomb onto a flight from London to New York, then another flight from New York to Boston, just to prove a point. Congress passed a bill in October, 1990 to establish training standards for airport security personnel, but much of the responsibility fell on Pan Am. The lawsuits were massive. Pan Am faced a federal fine of $630,000 for violating security rules, but all in all, this bombing cost them more than $350 million. It also didn't help that due to the Chernobyl disaster, international travel was already down, but this was the final blow to their struggling airline. People clearly wanted change, so the courts made an example out of Pan Am. They did not secure the airline properly, so they took the hit for an entire industry that needed better security standards. While I don't think the idea of security being poor everywhere is an excuse, lives were lost here, hundreds were lost here. And it does seem unfortunate that Pan Am took the fall, losing hundreds of millions and their reputation along with it for an issue that was reportedly industry-wide. However, other sources say that Pan Am was absolutely to blame and they should have seen the bombing coming. Apparently on September 6, 1986, two years before the tragedy, there was an attack on a Pan Am airline in Karachi, Pakistan. And in that scenario, 18 passengers and crew members were killed. An article from March, 1989, a few months after the bombing states, Pan American World Airways is still failing to heed many anti-terrorism measures and an Israeli security firm suggested to the carrier more than two years ago, a congresswoman said today. The security consultant concluded that Pan Am conducted insufficient checks of baggage, did a poor job of questioning passengers boarding planes and was slow to react to warnings of possible terrorist activity. She quoted passengers from two reports KPI Inc presented to Pan Am in September and November of 1986. The firm had reviewed Pan Am's security at nine airports, including Frankfurt and London's Heathrow Airport. Pan Am's flight 103 on which a bomb exploded last December 21st over Scotland, killing 270 people originated in Frankfurt and stopped at Heathrow. Pan Am is highly vulnerable to most forms of terrorist attack, the September report said. The fact that no major disaster has occurred to date is merely providential. That report was written within days of the September 6, 1986 attack on a Pan Am plane in Karachi, Pakistan, in which 18 passengers and crew members were slain. As for Gaddafi, his regime accepted responsibility for the Lockerbie bombing, but not the guilt and paid $8 million to the family of each victim. Just before his death in 2011, his former justice minister told a Swedish newspaper that the Libyan leader had personally ordered the bombing. Whether this is true or not has to be determined. Some facts of the case remain unknown and new information is still being released to this day. Literally, new changes were released as recently as December, 2020. Pan Am was dealt a massive blow. As opposed to $350 million, some say that this case actually cost Pan Am over $500 million. The fact that they didn't seem to correct any of the gaps in their security that told them to change, well, it definitely didn't make me feel sympathetic towards them. And the fact that the lives on Flight 103 may have been preventable if these security measures were in place is devastating. And so between the hundreds of millions of payouts, their terrible merger, their reputation sinking, oil prices rising yet again in 1990, Pan Am couldn't make it. Headlines read that Pan Am's wings were clipped. It filed for bankruptcy on January 8, 1991. And after a bidding war, Delta Airlines purchased the majority of Pan Am for $1.4 billion acquiring 45 jets, its European routes, its Northeastern shuttle routes, and its flagship Pan Am Worldport Terminal at JFK. Pan Am was hoping to emerge from bankruptcy court. However, after realizing that Pan Am was actually losing money at the rate of $3 million per day, Delta stopped its cash advances. Unable to get money elsewhere, Pan Am officially shut all operations down on December 4th of that year. The LA Times wrote that this unsettled the nervous flying public. The failure of Pan Am is especially painful to its remaining 10,000 employees, some of whom volunteered to assist passengers Wednesday without pay. Longtime workers watched as the airline that inaugurated commercial jet travel slowly self-destructed over the 1980s when it sold off its prize specific routes, then later sold most of its remaining European routes. It's the end, said Eva Foldvery, a Pan Am passenger service agent in Miami who broke down and cried as she talked about the company she had worked with for nearly three decades. When I came back from my coffee break, I saw people going in the back with their cash drawers and their tickets, and they told me they were through. We've had so many beautiful years. It was terminated today. Now I'm going home. Now, since that time, Pan Am was continually being resurrected as recently as 2010 for the fifth time, by the way, by worldwide consolidated logistics. Yet, it doesn't seem to matter how many times people have tried to bring this back to life. Pan Am has only come back in a minor form, a shadow of its former self. The most recent founder of Pan Am, Robert Hedrick, was convicted of some truly disgusting and terrifying crimes. So the company lost its bid to pursue passengers or cargo flights of any kind. Now, Pan Am's known as the former flagship airline of the US, a pioneer, a record-breaking company that seemingly fell apart. If you Google Pan Am, there's a lot of results for what happened or what killed Pan Am. And honestly, there really isn't a simple answer, but a series of shortages, poor merger decisions, and a lack of security. Even so, Pan Am remains firmly grounded, both as an airline and in American culture. As their website puts it, today, Pan Am endures only as a symbol of the American century. And so with that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. Thank you for spending some of your time here with me today. I hope you enjoyed it. I most certainly enjoyed researching into Pan Am and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.